This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. The story is this man's adventure in search of a hidden truth. And it would be no adventure if it did not happen to a man fit for adventure. This is a podcast of rare antiquities. This time, we say hello to a goodbye. A goodbye so long it's like dying a little. A goodbye that crawls by like a sick cockroach. Today, we're talking about Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. I am your co-host, Jeff. This is Harry. <laughs> hey, man, welcome. Welcome back to the show. Another another timely episode. How's it going? Good, good. How are you? Yeah. Doing good. Just trying to get in the spirit of things here a little bit. Yeah, today we're uh, we're going to talk about 1973's The Long Goodbye, directed by Robert Altman. As it is our custom to reminisce a little bit. Tell me about your you know history or awareness of this film. No awareness whatsoever. <laughs> Never heard of it. Aside from a special cameo, which I'm sure you'll bring up later, I have seen Elliot Gould in a couple of movies. I am aware of him, but seeing him in a role like this, I believe, was uh, is definitely uh, a new thing for me. But I seem to recall, for some strange reason, he was kind of a big thing in the 70s, I think. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get into L.A. Gould in a, in a bit, for sure. Kind of the same. I mean, I had been aware of the film before. I suggested it for for the show. I'd seen the movie years and years and years ago. You know, it was, uh, it was a favorite of my dad's, actually, so which is why I kind of took a look into it and I was watching uh, and then like I say many years ago I was just watching some Robert Altman movies so heard it was uh, a good example of Altman's work so I thought I'd take uh, take a look into it but not one of my go-to's or anything like that so it's uh, certainly uh, not something that hits a lot of people's radar maybe before we kind of get into it a little bit I'll talk a little bit about some trivia we can kind of get into it from there so uh, again like I say the film came uh, out in 1973 sorry go ahead but yeah before you proceed just have a question you know this whether you can classify this in the genre as film noir I'm not really sure if it properly fits into the traditional niche of, of mm. that it kind of does yeah in a sense but is this something that is more of a genre to your liking well for, this, for you personally yeah that's a good question so the genre so this would be classified now as neo-noir so film noir so a good example of film noir when we uh, did a few episodes ago typically you know you're looking at black and white films you're looking at a often a detective story uh sometimes that might involve a a detective or or not or somebody who's just uh investigating some kind of a mystery uh, often you'll encounter a protagonist who is uh what's known as the hard-boiled detective i suppose that's you know it's kind of a broad genre but that those would be some of the staples of it there the neo-noir genre which is sort of a subset would be films that follow some of the tropes of film noir but would be somewhat modernized or would take place after the film noir period so the film noir period would be you know anywhere from the 30s to the early 50s now not not everything every movie that was made in in that time time frame would be a uh, considered film noir but that's when uh, those films would have been made humphrey bogart would be probably yeah, the know. best example yeah, i mean like so. yeah that's maltese falcon uh, maltese, i was just gonna say maltese falcon yeah. is not only one of my favorite books it's 
the the one film noir if someone says a genre film noir movie what's your favorite one Maltese Falcon yeah hands down for um, sure that, I, I love yeah. that one right and it's a great book too absolutely um, yeah but I mean like Chinatown another I know you're fond of that one mm-hmm. I'm s- assuming we can pretty much classify that does that does that go into the film noir I'm assuming then it's a new noir see now that's a good point because. It would have been, you know, the uh, Chinatown was made in the 70s, so it kind of takes pl- – so it's made in more the neo-noir period. But it's – But because yeah, it it's a period place, piece, yeah, yeah, period it takes piece, place. Yeah. Yeah. It would probably be classified as a film noir, but a modern film noir. But because this one takes place in the 70s and was an update of a noir story, not film noir, but a noir story, we would call this a, neo, a neo-noir. So hmm. – yeah, uh, another example of a neo-noir film. I don't think you're a fan, but The Big Lebowski would be uh, sort of a, an example of a neo-noir film as well. For those who are familiar with that picture, there's probably a couple of films from the Coen brothers that would that would fall into, into that genre as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Get the alcohol in as much as you can. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a long goodbye. It is very long, very long goodbye. I'll hit you with a little bit of trivia before we before we get into the synopsis here, just to sort of set the set the mood. So this was again, like I said, released in 1973, early 1973 in March. Very limited release. The initial release was such a gigantic failure that the studio actually pulled it from the very few theaters it was in to, in an attempt to find out just what the hell to do with it. Different. Ideas were floated around the studio, anything from extensive reshoots to re-editing, redoing the editing, or sorry, the ending, uh, you name it. In the end, they actually decided to keep the cut of the movie as is, but alter the marketing campaign. The original marketing campaign build this as a more traditional detective style story. So they they retooled that a little bit and re-released it in October of that year, 1973. The reviews were a little bit more positive, but the box office uh, was still quite poor. Hard to come across the box office numbers now, but by what I could account for in my research, The Long Goodbye grossed about $959,000, and I couldn't find the budget, but uh, considering an early 70s movie, that would probably cost more than 10, around 10, I would say. I, I would say so, especially with a, a director like Robert Altman in at the helm there. It, it wouldn't have been cheap to produce this this film here. So certainly this would have been considered a flop. No, no question about it. So, mm-hmm. all right. Well, let's get into uh, the plot synopsis. Any other thoughts before we dive in? No, I mean, again, just the only real curiosity, one really curiosity thing I have from this movie is more just... Because I didn't bother doing the research, I'm wondering if you know is just Elliot Gould himself. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I've seen him in post ninety stuff. As a he's real, typically, I hate to say it, typecast as the older Jewish gentleman, yeah, father yeah. figure, grandfather figure. He's kind of just fallen into that kind of stereotype. But as I said, I seem to recall he was a bigger deal when he was younger and here he is starring in his own vehicle. This is his movie. He's, he's the lead. Yeah. And he's pretty much in every scene. I think I did watch this movie a few days ago, but just the one time, but I think he is in every single scene, whether mm-hmm. that's true or not, you can maybe let me know if you recall, but just going back to Elliot Gould is, was he something of a star during that time? I'm just curious. Good question. I think Elliot Gould's never quite achieved what we would call sort of superstardom from a Hollywood standpoint, but he is the 
I think probably one of the quintessential examples of a working actor and probably at the upper echelon of working actor. So his IMDb profile has 179 acting credits. He is still working today at the age of 78. So I'm just curious. You've used this term in a few podcasts. He is a working actor. Are you just basing it based on the number of films he's appeared in? Or are you distinct? Are you kind of giving him a sort of some kind of distinguishment, uh, distinguishment or respect because you feel he's earned it just from the sheer volume of work? Or do you actually think he is good at what he does? Okay, that's a fair question. So Because you've used this with other actors yeah. in previous podcasts. Now I'm just, yeah. you keep using it, so now I'm curious as to what you really mean by it. So usually what I'm referring to is a, is a few things when I use that term. So one, certainly the number of credits acts as a, a plus in, in the column, simply because if you suck you tend not to continue on in that uh, in, in your career. You don't get that much work if you're not that good. Uh, so that's one thing. So just the number. Two is longevity. So not just the number of credits, but how many different eras you can kind of occupy. As we, as you and I know, right, we watch a lot of movies, and year by year, decade by decade, movies change. Uh, the style of movies change. The directors change, studios change, studio heads change. There's so much going on that I think it's a they, testament they, they to the They change and they don't change. Ask J.J. Well, Abrams. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but, but yeah, Anyways, he, uh, he gets away with quite a bit, that's for sure. But when you, I mean, so if you're a guy, so Elliot Gould, his acting career started in 1964 and stretches all the way to, to present day, to 2017 and beyond. That's That's a long time. And I mean, people age. So you have to be able to play different types of characters at different ages in different types of roles for that long. So, again, when I so when I talk about a working actor. So would you uh, put Shatner in that category? I would put Shatner in that category, except that, you know, I'm a fan of Shatner, except that his sphere of influence is a little bit smaller, smaller in the sense that he's been in fewer things, but he's. I mean, he's obviously as famous as it as it gets. His range is a little bit smaller. And that's no disrespect to Shatner, because I think actually Shatner has greater range than people give him credit for. If you actually watch the guy, he's actually pretty good. But um, I wouldn't say good, good, but he's not as bad as people make him out to be. No, he has definitely. more range than people think. And he's just playing into a t- into a piece that people want. Yeah. But anyway, to get back to uh, Elliot Gould, I mean, you're right. I mean, lately... He's he's been a bit typecast, sort of as the older uh, Jewish gentleman, if you will. I mean, he is Jewish. He, in fact, uh, did change his name, as was uh, fairly common, I would say, for a lot of Jewish individuals in show business. Uh, he was born Elliot Goldstein, uh, and you know, in the in that time, that would that was a common thing for Jewish men to change their names to to sound less Jewish so they could get better roles. And, and I'd say that that trend generally doesn't continue as much today because uh, of the uh, you know the mainstream is certainly a long well, you uh, can proud just, tradition of mm-hmm. Jewish people in in show business, obviously. Yeah, or you could certainly. just fucking just initialize your fucking name MCG bullshit or whatever you want to do, right? <laughs> 
Oh, McG. Coming up again on the show. Thanks, McG. I don't know if he's Jewish. I sure, I certainly no, I'm not saying because... he's Jewish. I'm just saying that it's not as this is not a show knocking. I'm going to call him MCG because what the fuck? I don't even know. And when you abbreviate your name like that, you really shouldn't be offended if people want to say GMC or whatever, right? It's like, yeah. like what's are you the car? Exact... Is this the car? I'm not sure. Like, put your name out there. What are you, Madonna? Come on. Yeah. What a guy. So I'm anyway. saying that's what you can do now. It's well, yeah, acceptable. You can, but I, you know what? I think everybody looks at that and goes, come on, buddy. No, no. I'm making fun of it, too. It's ridiculous. But I'm just yeah, saying, it's, if it's, you want to do it, go nuts. Keep it. <laughs> anyway. Well, since we're talking about Elliot Gould, let's talk about him a little bit since he is our star. Like I said, he has 179 credits to his name. He is still working. His acting career began in 1964 in the TV movie Once Upon a Mattress. Uh, he was already 26, so he was uh, uh, an adult, right? He was. Didn't begin I'm sorry, movie. that was a great, great first uh, movie. What's <laughs> <laughs> a fun mattress? Yeah, I mean, it's I, a I fun like porn, it. right? <laughs> It's a great porn movie name. Yeah, no, it's good. I I'm gonna try to rent it on iTunes. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's there somewhere. He probably had his earliest famous role as Trapper John in Mash, also directed by Robert Altman. He was in A Bridge Too Far, a film called The Devil and Max Devlin, which was one of my favorites from childhood. The Muppets Take Manhattan, 22 episodes of ER, not the ER from the 90s, but uh, an 80s version uh, spelled E slash R, 22 episodes. He was in episodes of L.A. Law. He was in American History X. Most modern audiences uh, probably know him from Ocean's Eleven, and he was in 20 episodes of of Friends as Ross and Monica's dad. So uh, that's uh, sort of his modern items. And again, many, many, many more credits. He was more known for his comedic style, which made him an interesting choice to take on the role of hard-boiled Detective Philip Marlowe in this film, somewhat more controversial decision since the role had previously been played by Humphrey Bogart himself in uh, in The Big Sleep hmm. some 20 years earlier. So certainly an interesting choice for the role. So we'll come back to some trivia later. Let's uh, <coughs> let's get into, into the film. You ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. All right. The Long Goodbye. It's a hot L.A. night. So hot you can soak a towel with your sweat or fry an egg on the hood of your car. For hard-boiled private dick Philip Marlowe. It's just another night for smoking cigarettes, and, well, that's pretty much it. Marlowe's old friend, Terry Lennox, bangs on the door, sporting scratches on his cheeks and bruises on his knuckles. A little trouble with the wife, perhaps. Marlowe knows not to ask too many questions. Easier to play dumb that way. Terry needs a lift to Tijuana. Eh, nothing weird about that. Nothing to see here. Marlowe complies. But when he arrives back home in L.A., a couple of wise guy cops are waiting to shake him down. Terry's wife has been murdered and they're going to charge Marlowe as an accessory after the fact. It's down to the big house for Marlowe, where he's put through the ringer by the 5-0. They like Lennox for the murder of his wife, and Marlowe's not buying it. Sure, they have their problems, but murder isn't Terry's style. After the interrogation, they leave Marlowe to sweat in a jail cell for a couple days. Then, with no explanation, they cut him loose. Turns out, Terry Lennox has been found in Ottotoclin, some backwater town in Mexico, dead by self-inflicted blood poisoning. He even left a note confessing to his wife's murder. Case closed. But it's still not adding up to Marlowe. If all Terry wanted was to kill himself, he could have done that in L.A. So why go all the way to Tijuana, then fly to some nowhere town in Mexico to do it? No, this stinks worse than rat pine or rotten egg factory. Marlowe gets hired to locate the best-selling author and notorious lush, Mr. Roger Wade. According to his wife, Eileen, he got drunk, 
punched her in the face, and ran off a week ago. She tells Marlowe that Roger sometimes seeks out professional help at a clinic where he can dry out for a few days. But she's called already, and according to them, Roger isn't there. But it's still the best place to start, so Marlowe shows up at the clinic. No one's talking, however. Even Roger's doctor pretends he's not there. But a professional gumshoe like Marlowe can smell a rat a mile away. He snoops around that night, and sure enough, there's the powerful and little nutty Mr. Roger Wade arguing with his doctor for a significant sum of money. Marlowe breaks up the affair before Roger can sign the check. He gathers up Roger, and it's case closed. But trouble follows Marlowe like a hungry dog follows a taco vendor on a hot Mexican street, and a team of goons are waiting for him back at his house. Marty Augustine, big-time racketeer, is asking after Terry Lennox. It seems Terry owed Marty a few Benjamins, and Marlowe is the only connection left for Marty to shake down. They toss his place over looking for a sign of the cash, and then Marlowe's put on the case of tracking down the money, whether he likes it or not. Just as they leave through the elevator, Marlowe hurries on down the stairs so we can get a bead on where these guys came from and what they're up to. And wouldn't you know it, he follows them to the residence of Mr. and Mrs. Roger Wade. He can spy Augustine speaking firmly to Eileen, but it's not close enough to hear. This is an interesting coincidence. But not able to find anything further from this vantage point, Marlowe heads back home and finds a letter waiting for him. It says simply, Goodbye, Phil. I'm sorry. And it includes a $5,000 bill. It's from Terry. In the morning, Marlowe pays a visit to the Wades. Roger is drinking again, of course, and the situation between he and Eileen is tense. Roger asks Marlowe to hang out for a bit, have a drink on the beach. Marlowe probes about their relationship with Marty Augustine, and according to Roger, Augustine owes him $50,000. Marlowe probes further. Did Roger know Lennox? Turns out he did know him a little. And his wife? Oh, maybe. It was time to head down to Mexico to see just what the situation was when Lennox blew his brains out. But the town's coroner slash photographer slash doctor and the town's sheriff confirmed the newspaper reports. Terry checked into a hotel room, put a gun to his head, and punched his own ticket. They even have the photos to prove it. Still, some things are not adding up. Back in L.A. at the Wade residence, they're having a little get-together. Roger is roaring drunk and making a scene. In attendance at the party is Dr. Verringer, and he's still looking for his $4,400. Roger is all bluster, but when Verringer gives him a sharp slap across the kisser, Roger's facade falls and we see a tired, pathetic old man. Eileen breaks the party up, but asks Marlowe to stay, just in case Roger gets any funny ideas. Marlowe hangs around, has a nice dinner with Eileen, and he uses the relaxed atmosphere to pump her for some information. Just how well did the two of them know the Lennoxes? Could it be that Roger was having an affair with Sylvia? Where was he the night she was killed? Just as Eileen's discomfort rises... They see through the window a drunk, staggering Roger Wade strolling into the roaring ocean. Marlowe heads after him, but the waves are too strong, and Roger is lost. The cops arrive, and Marlowe is half-past hammered, but he continues to press Eileen about Roger's involvement with Sylvia Lennox. Roger is big, a drunk, and has a bad temper, just the sort of man who would be willing and capable to beat Sylvia Lennox into a bloody pulp. Yes, she admits, he was having an affair with Sylvia, and Eileen believes Roger killed her. Marlowe heads to visit with Marty Augustine again, this time at his office. After an odd exchange, they find the $5,000 bill on Marlowe's person, exactly like one of the three $5,000 bills in the bag in Lennox's possession when he left for Mexico, according to Augustine. This certainly doesn't look good for Marlowe, and one gets the impression that things are about to get messy. But just before a shirtless Conan the Barbarian pops Marlowe's skull like a ripe grape, Marty gets a delivery. It's a bag full of the missing cash. 
case close, at least for him. After getting laid up in the hospital for a few days on account of acute speeding car accident syndrome, Marlo heads out again to see Eileen. But she's long gone, and her house is getting packed up. Everything seems to be getting tied up in a neat little bow. A little too neat. So it's back to Mexico one more time. Marlo arrives and discovers Terry's suicide was faked. And what's more, he did indeed kill his wife, Sylvia. She found out about Terry's affair with Eileen, and yes, that Eileen Wade, and she freaked out. She knew he was carrying money for Marty Augustine and threatened to go to the police, so he had no choice. He killed her, grabbed the money, had Marlo take him to Mexico, where he faked his death to get the cops off his trail, sent Marty's money back to get him off his trail, and he can live happily ever after in paradise. Who cares, right? Nobody. Nobody but Marlo. He takes out his gun and kills Lennox where he stands. The end. So, Harry, that's the long goodbye. Just from the plot synopsis, what are your initial thoughts? Typical type of mystery, murder mystery type of... I mean, I haven't seen so many film noir type of detective stories. I've seen a few. But uh, the story's fairly straightforward and simple with a fairly predictable twist. Um... And it really depends on the execution, on how mm. how it's going to unravel, if there's any other layers that are happening, what makes it interesting, are the characters well drawn out, are the scenes well drawn out, are, is the twists engaging, or do they just simply unfold? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's yeah. kind of with mysteries and twists. You know, it's kind of like they sound they can sound the same. You can either you can either develop Murder She Wrote or Columbo. Or you can yeah. develop the Maltese Falcon, right? Yeah. So which, yeah. where on the on that spectrum is it going to fall? That's all in the direction, the acting, and the execution. Right. I completely agree. And and the, an interesting challenge they had here. So when the thought came to to make this film, you know, one of the decisions that had to be made was were they going to make this a a period piece? Like I said, the the novel, uh, the Long Goodbye. Uh, was written in uh, 1952, I believe, and was sort of, in fact, at that point, would have been at the tail end of the hard-boiled detective, the height of that genre. So when they decided to adapt this, you know, that's 20 years in the rearview mirror. A lot of what happens in the original novel, The Long Goodbye, is at this point, you know, what we consider a cliche. So one of the challenges of of adapting the novel was... You know, make it a period piece, modernize it. And if they're going to modernize it, how do they deal with uh, a lot of sort of the standard tropes? So definitely some of the some of the challenges there. So so I agree. Uh, You know, how do how do they sort of deal with some of those challenges? Can they get good enough performances? Again, Elliot Gould, as I had said, was uh, somewhat of a controversial choice for uh, what was a a fairly famous pop culture character at the time so but let's uh, let's talk a little bit about that so the the long goodbye was adapted for the screen by screenwriter and novelist by the name of Lee Brackett who mm. fans of the show perhaps and you and I know for her work on the Empire Strikes Back, mm-hmm. uh, she had been commissioned to write the, uh, I guess what you would say, the first draft of the screenplay for the Empire Strikes Back from George Lucas's original story. Lee Brackett was a fairly prolific science fiction novelist and short story writer. She had quite a successful career, many novels and short stories prior to her work as a screenwriter. The Empire Strikes Back was, in fact, her final work before she died of cancer in uh, in 1978 reportedly her george didn't care for the direction she took 
the story of The Empire Strikes Back, and then he turned it over to Lawrence Kasdan to rewrite it. Uh, her original screenplay has never been uh, published, uh, although there are rumors that you can uh, view it in the Lucasfilm archives, but not sure exactly what it looked like. But she, it was actually her second attempt at, I don't want to say attempt, it was her second adaptation of a Raymond Chandler uh, novel. She did also adapt The Big Sleep, which starred Humphrey Bogart as uh, Philip Marlowe, which is probably the more famous, probably the most famous adaptation uh, of the character Philip Marlowe and of uh, Raymond Chandler's work. Almost all of uh, Chandler's work has been adapted to the screen, and Philip Marlowe has been played by many different actors, including Danny Glover in an HBO. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he also served as uh, part of the inspiration for uh, a character you and I know well from uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, Captain Picard's, uh, or Patrick Stewart's... Yes. Uh, the Big yeah. Goodbye, I think it's called, right? Yeah, I think it was that. The that's big the goodbye. episode, I think, that's called. Uh, but that's the but episode. What, 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 what he's supposed to be playing, I know he plays a private eye. I forget what they call him. Well, what's his name? It's not me. Uh, no, I, it's not. Yeah, it, I can't believe I, I can't. I can't remember what uh, what the name of the character was, but certainly inspired by this both. Name. Yeah, and and also uh, inspired by uh, the other, you know, famous hardboiled detective yeah. Sam Sam Spade uh, was another uh, inspiration for uh, for that. So anyway, so definitely a pop culture prefer, uh, presence from this from this character. Again, directed by Robert Altman, some signature Altman uh, style here. One thing Altman likes to do is have his characters talk over each other. So sometimes you have to really pay attention during during dialogue scenes because it's very common for for characters to talk at the same time, as is common for regular people to do in you know regular speech. That's something that he liked to incorporate into his films. The femme fatale Eileen Wade is played by Nina Van Palant. Uh, actually, really a, sort of an interesting story about her. She was the mistress of a writer by the name of Clifford Irving. Clifford Irving was sort of uh, a famous hoaxer and writer. He had peddled a fake biography of notorious recluse Howard Hughes, and he had said mm -hmm. that he collaborated with Howard Hughes on this autobiography. He was eventually exposed, and she sort of contributed to the exposure. She said she was vacationing with the guy when he was allegedly interviewing Howard Hughes. But that story was adapted into the 2006 film The Hoax, starring mm -hmm. Richard Gere, whom Nina Van Plant had starred with in the film American Gigolo in 1980. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. I actually like I actually liked her performance in this movie. Yeah, I I did too. I thought I thought she did a very good job. She did a good job, but they sort of watered down what uh, would have been what's sort of the traditional femme fatale role. She uh, she doesn't pose quite the threat to to Marlowe or to the situation that that the femme fatale would normally or that she would have in the original novel. But again, when they're sort of dealing with the cliches that are sort of built in here, I think this is sort of one of the aspects of the novel that fell by the wayside. I did read the novel in preparation for the podcast, The Big Goodbye, written by Raymond Chandler, actually his longest novel. So quite the challenge adapting this to the screen. And there are some key differences in the narrative and to many of the characters. Uh, the ending is different. Eileen. Uh, I don't want to spoil it for people who, who want to read it, but suffice to say that fans of the character and of the novel 
are quite surprised when Marlowe draws down on Lennox at the end and just blows him away. Uh, that's sort of uncharacteristic violence for the characters, certainly, I don't want to say unprovoked, but not in, not in self-defense. So that's one of the larger uh, differences here. The biggest difference I found that was relevant to the story was the relationship between Lennox and Marlowe. In the film, Lennox shows up right away, and a couple of lines just lead us to believe that these two have been old friends for many, many, many years. The novel, Marlowe meets Lennox by chance outside of a club, and the two sort of strike up a sort of asymmetrical friendship Lennox takes to Marlowe almost right away. And Lennox, you know, having money due to his marriage, would take them out for extravagant dinners, drinks, and, uh, you know, that's not really Marlowe's scene. So it, it, so when Lennox shows up asking Marlowe to, you know, be his getaway man to get to Mexico, it's a bit of a different feel when you, when you take a look, when you read the novel as opposed to seeing the film. But I think the key, the core of the novel, which is the character of Marlowe, is translated very well, I thought, even considering the, the time shift to the 70s. A lot of people don't agree with that, but I think that worked quite well for me. So, so anyway, let's kind of get into uh, to the film here. Any other uh, thoughts before we before we dive in? No, no, let's dive in. So we open, Marlo's <laughs> wakes up in bed. All he's been doing is smoking cigarettes. He's got problems with, with his cat. Heads out in the middle of the night to, to buy some cat food. You know, the the cat, anybody who owns a cat or has owned a cat knows that they're a little fussy with their food. So I, I thought this was kind of a, a funny way to, to open. As he gets home, we get Lennox arrives. We see him pull on uh, the gloves in his car before it goes up to, to Marlo's house there. His uh, knuckles are bruised up. His face is scratched. He's obviously been in some kind of altercation. There's the girls in the apartment sort of across the way there who are all topless all the time. What did you think of this opening here? I mean, they're kind of trying to set the stage. None of this is in is in the novel. So this is uh, squarely a portrait of 1970s Los Angeles. What are your thoughts on on the setting? Just open. Well, I like the, the this entire opening sequence, setting the character, setting who Marlowe is. He has a couple of, you know, quirks. Um, he talks to himself. And as someone who does that, like, I, I, I sometimes find myself, I'll just, if someone, no one's around, I'll just end up talking to myself about what I'm doing or talking to the dog or he's talking to the cat. And it's relatable. It's It's a quirk. You know, it makes him slightly interesting and endearing at the same time and i like that the setting itself i enjoyed you get to see his apartment you get to see where he's living you mentioned the girls i mean yeah la lifestyle 70s i mean probably could still be la today i mean that's la so yeah. it set, sets it semi-realistic i mean it's setting the tone and and who he is and he's a private eye and he doesn't it shows he doesn't really have a lot of interest in just hanging around these girls i mean whether he's just so used to it because it's the setting or he himself has no interest in it. And I find that's kind of an interesting concept in, in establishing his character and that his relationship with Eileen later didn't think too much of Terry's entrance. But before that, I enjoyed that he's trying to still fool the cat with by saying it's going in the old can. And, and it's a little, little too much that I would do that, but I chuckled at that. I thought it was a, a neat little scene. I, I like the beginning here. The stuff with Terry and he... It seems like it's okay. I mean, you're supposed to understand that these guys are, you take a leap of faith, they're old friends, and he comes by, his friend's awake, and you see Terry's got blood on his hands, and he's covering it, so it's 
intriguing. You're interesting. It's setting the mystery or part of the mystery. And I like these opening scenes and I had no issues with the friendship because it's implied that they've known each other for a long time and he drops by. It's LA. People don't sleep a lot. He knows he's a private eye. So he's probably up at late hours of the night, uh, Marlo. So Terry drops by and says, give me a lift. And he take, gives him a lift and I didn't think anything of it. It seemed reasonable to me. And I like these scenes. Yeah, no, I, I did too. And I, I like the economy of encapsulating their friendship very quickly. They kind of play a game with the numbers and their dollar bills. You know, I respect when they can get an existing friendship out of the way or a relationship out of the way very quickly and effectively. So yeah, it seemed natural. It yeah, it seemed seem, natural. It didn't seem like it was forced or false or anything like that. We can get to it without a bunch of setup. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that. I think it was effective there. Scene with the cat again. Like I, I thought it was entertaining. Again, it's not in the novel, but according to and I haven't read this myself, but according to Robert Altman, he didn't really read the novel itself, and he instructed his crew to read some of the essays and letters from Raymond Chandler as opposed to the novel. And this bit with the cat uh, is a story from one of Raymond Chandler's letters. As he recounts something that happened to a friend of his, uh, specifically about the food, but. So he takes Terry. They they drive to Tijuana to an air to the airport in Tijuana, where Lennox uh, presumably gets on a gets on a flight, heads out. Marlowe heads back to his house, and and there's the there are the cops waiting for him. There uh, we find out that Lennox's wife has been murdered, and obviously when a wife is murdered, the prime suspect is the husband, especially when they can't find him. The little interaction here with, with the cops at his house. There's one line in, in particular that I really liked. So, you know, they kind of sit him down. They're sort of being, uh, you know, they're playing sort of bad cop, worst cop with him. Uh-huh. And he, he says the line, they ask him a couple questions. He says, is this where I say what it's all about? And then you guys say, shut up. I ask the questions. It was kind of an interesting line because that's sort of a cliche. And, and he's sort of identifying the cliche before it happens, which is you know, something that I think they, they, you know, they threw in the film to acknowledge that they're, they're playing on a lot of film noir, hard boiled tropes here. At the same uh, time, it shows that this is not his first rodeo. Mm-hmm. So he's been through this before. He knows the drill. He knows the routine. He knows how the system works. Yeah, effective. But whether you're playing it light at this point, I mean, I'm not personally a fan when films don't take itself too seriously. Unless you're particularly being a spoof or very satirical, and that's the intent. Here, I'm not really a fan of how he started to just throw out those lines saying, oh, you know, um, is this the part where, you know, I'm supposed to say this or you're going to ask me this? I think that's been done so much that every time I see it, I just kind of wince. It's, it is very cliche, and I'm not sure if it's played for humor or, as you had suggested, played for references and throwbacks. So yeah. yeah, I mean, my personal opinion is that it's played a little for both, but it's hard to say. I mean, when I, when I you know was doing the research for the film and even on the back of the DVD case, a lot of reviews and references to the film talk about it as a send-up of The Long Goodbye, as a satire. And when I watch the film... I don't get that impression. No, so, neither do I. I no. don't see this as like them as a satirical approach or a spoof or commentating about the genre. It's just, I feel they play it pretty straight. Yeah. No, I agree. I think they do. They, they definitely do play it uh, a little straight. So so that's why this scene kind of stood out for me. It's like, okay, what's the intent? Is, is, yeah. is, is, is this just him trying to be humorous and... Sp- 
poking fun at the cops and saying, well, as I said, it's not my first time doing this. So I'm going to beat you to the punch before you ask me a question as a kind of like light humor for the audience. Or is it satirical? Yeah. I didn't play it. It didn't get hit me as satirical. No, I, you know what I mean? When I think back on it, I, it's hard to say. I think there's a couple layers here because it's almost like they're using the character. So, you know, Elliot Gould's in character as Marlo. He's taking it seriously. And this is how Marlo would take the situation because in a modern version, John McClane, you're just, you're sarcastic and kind of a dick all the time, no matter what. So even when things are over the top, you kind of treat everything as if it's over the top and you're and not and and you're worn out from it. So I you know, I wonder if they're using the character in in that respect, but it probably doesn't come off that way. So it's hard to say. You know, they take him back to the police station, he gets interrogated. Again, we get some sort of signature Robert Altman, you know, dialogue lines over over top uh, of each other, language that we wouldn't use uh, these days. They question his uh, his sexuality. Uh, they go into it, but basically they just they just throw him in jail. Uh, he protests that Terry Lennox would have been capable of of killing his wife. So you know we get a couple of scenes here. He doesn't seem too too concerned to be thrown in jail. You know too concerned about anything they've they've got on him. Uh, and eventually they they cut him loose. He runs into a reporter after so before, after three before days. You go, before yeah. you go on, yeah, you just mentioned three days. So yeah. he was held for three days without evidence. Of any kind. Yeah. I found that kind of strange, even for the 70s. I think for the I 70s, mean, that was a thing that you could do. Maybe. I I don't know. I was a little, I was like, really? I mean, you got nothing on him. So it's just a guy who's run away, whether he's an accomplice to murder or not. You have no evidence because you don't have, you don't know if Terry did anything. And you can't find uh, Terry. So why are they holding Marlo? I don't know. I found that kind of a little loose, but that's just me. Yeah, and, and perhaps that's... You know, a bit of a throwback again, they, you know, going back to the novel where when the book was written, there were no such thing as Miranda rights, you know, police. Maybe you're right. Yeah. Rights were, were a lot, uh, a lot broader. You could be right. And that's probably, if this is a direct, if this portion is more of a faithful adaptation from the book, then that explains it. Yeah. Which, which it is. This is, this is what happens in the novel. So. And even then, I mean, that, you know, Miranda writes, I think, came out of the, you know, mid to late 60s. So this could be, well, again, having not lived in the United States in the early 70s, hard to hard to say for sure. But anyway, so, yeah, so he gets out of uh, after a couple days and he learns that Lennox has been found dead in Mexico, apparent suicide, left a note confessing to the murder of his wife. So as far as the police are concerned, you know, it's all it's all good. Case closed. But he's not ready to kind of concede that uh, that his friend was capable of killing his wife. You know, from there, he eventually gets hired, takes on a case to a missing person's case to find the best-selling writer, Roger Wade. So he's hired by Wade's wife, Eileen. He heads down to their house, learns that he's a drunk, got violent, hit her every now and then, disappears for a few days, goes to a clinic to sort of dry out for a bit. But now this time... Something seems to be off. He's gone for for a little bit, a little bit longer. And this is the introduction of our what would be the femme fatale, played by Nina Van Palant. You know, clearly this is our our love interest for the film, or any conventional film. There, this would be our love interest. So you said you enjoyed her performance. Any other any other words on uh, Nina's performance here, or the character of Eileen Wade? No, I thought she did a very convincing job of playing a battered wife fearful of her husband she but she still had some pride in she didn't want 
things to be known to publicly. Like we get to see scenes later of her not wanting their relationship or details of the relationship being put out in public and things like that. Like when she finally talks to her husband, Mm -hmm. he's willing to just like let loose of everything, you know, in front of Marlo and she still wants to keep things private, uh, whether she's putting on a show or not, because as we know, she is the one having the affair anyways. And uh, I just found, I still enjoyed the performance anyways, regardless, even though in the back of my mind, you're always wondering, well, there's not too many characters in this film. What's really going on here? And you can kind of see things build up fairly quickly. Beyond her performance, I do have a question I have for you. Yeah, I was completely, you know, flew over my head as to how he came to her. So she, uh, you're saying she hired him. My question is, does this make any sense? I'm a little confused as to the motive of her wanting to get Marlo involved. Because if Terry is gone and like Marlo does nothing in the movie later to really influence her husband's death by suicide, in my opinion, what was the function of her? Like, what was the reasoning? I don't understand why she's hiring him to find him. Yeah. Yeah. So I I found this kind of aspect of the story, first of all, a little confusing because I'm saying, how did he end up here? And you you said she's get she was hiring him. And why? question is why? I know the reason yep. she wants to find the husband. So yes, you want to find, technically you want to hire either talk to the police or hire a private eye. But why is she doing this when she's secretly the bad guy? Yeah, I have the same concerns that, that you have right now. It is very convenient that. That's putting it kindly, my friend. Yeah. This yeah. doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Speaking of Shatner, there's a great. Shatner comparison. It's a funny fucking movie. I'm telling you. You got to watch it. But it's a TV movie, so you probably would never. It's an older one in the 90s or late 90s. I think it's called Dead Man's Island. It even had Bud Bundy in it. That's how terrible it was. <laughs> and it's like a it's like a very a TV special movie and he he's a famous rich man and he has family and extra other friends and relatives and cousins all surrounding him asking for money and i guess he's getting older and he might have cancer i can't remember this movie i just remember laughing at it but he hires a private investigator to come and find the killer who's trying to harm him and it ends up being him it ends up being him <laughs> yeah so, someone's trying to kill me it's me <laughs> <laughs> I think you've told me about this before. I don't think I've ever seen it. Oh, my God. It's got a great death scene at the end with Shatner. Oh, my goodness. That man can do no wrong. (laughs) Shatner was in an episode of Columbo as well where he was the killer also, which was a pretty good episode of Columbo. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to the the movie. So I believe, and and I don't think it comes across all that well, but you know what I mean? I try to place the film in its time, you know, in the 70s, and... Part of his reluctance to speak to the police, so just going back to the previous scenes, was, you know, who's going to hire a private eye who squealed to the police on his friend? And in the newspaper articles, it describes how Marlowe didn't talk. He didn't crack. You know what I mean? He was honest. So I think that what they were, I don't think it worked, but I believe what the thrust of it was, and also from, you know, having read the novel, is that he gained a little bit of notoriety from the newspaper articles where he was arrested and didn't give any information to the police regarding the Lennox case. You know, I think that is part of it. You know, how many private eyes are there in L.A. at this point in, in history? You know, luck of the draw. I, you know, I, 
I don't know, but it's certainly, as you said, convenient is a very generous term at this uh, point for, as, for that. Ma- as yeah. Martin Riggs said, fucking anorexic. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. It's, yeah. it's definitely thin. It's definitely yeah. thin. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I mean, we do hear his half of the phone call when she calls him to investigate the case. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It, it's. I think we see examples of this more nowadays in films where they really, really try to keep the plot moving and just go from scene to scene to scene to scene really, really quickly, that they jump over, you know, leaps in convenience, you know, just try to keep the plot moving. I think it stands out a little bit more here because this is a film that moves a a little bit slower, for sure. You know, it could be that, you know, as we know later, she knew Terry. Obviously, she, so by extension, she (laughs) aware of marlo so she needs to hire somebody to find her husband he'd be the guy to call i suppose but yeah i don't i don't know it would have made more sense if she ended up actually killing the husband and hoping that marlo would keep his mouth shut because of that newspaper article because he's friends with terry and Mm -hmm. that would be the hope like if she was put in a corner where she would actually have to kill the husband yeah this would make a bit more sense but because she's or she's trying to use him to do the job for him or something along those lines. This well, doesn't make any sense. Like that, I, that's just me. But let's maybe let's move on because I think we're yeah. on the same page here. Yeah. No, I, th- I I think we're on the same page here. So a clue from House Marlo manages to track down the doctor and the clinic where Rogers hold up and you know does uh, sort of a bit of the stakeout. Finds Roger hold up in this place and we get our first look at Roger Wade and he's he's clearly not well. Is a he's a big guy. But what I thought was interesting is he's, you know, this tiny, the doctor, Dr. Verringer, this tiny little guy, funny looking dude is shaking him down for, for the $4,400 there. He's this tiny little guy and Roger Kent seemed to stand up for him. Now, do you recognize this, this actor from anything? The, the, the guy who plays Dr. Verringer? No, he looked familiar, but I mean, I can't, I'm going to guess he appeared on a Star Trek episode. He must have. That's actually a good question. So the actor's name is is Henry Gibson. And, and, you know, he's been around quite a bit as well. He's been on a lot of things. 151 credits. Is he a working actor, though? To his name. Well, 151 <laughs> credits. He's no Elliot Gould. Okay. Let me tell you. Okay. But, I just, uh, just thought I was curious. He's been, he, I mean, he's been in a lot of things. He actually was in uh, an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Is that where you were really coming from? Like, do you know you were? No, me? you know, I don't know if it's a film that that you enjoy, but he plays the the villain, if you can call him the villain, in the Tom Hanks film, The Burbs. I've never seen The Burbs. Oh, you've never seen The Burbs? Never seen The Burbs. Oh shit, we got to do that on the show. Sorry, Carrie, it's got Carrie Fisher in it. Yeah, I've always wanted to see it. Again, there's just some things that you know, ships that pass in the night. You know, sometimes I just can't yeah, get no, on board. It's certainly not, well, we can... I no, guess. no, sometimes those movies are just better than you think they are. Yeah, there, there were moments. Anyway, Marlo takes Roger back to his house, sets him back up with the wife. You know, they, you know, she seems to be eager to keep him around, to keep an eye on him. He's, he's reluctant to do that, but, you know, he kind of just wants to extricate himself from the situation. Heads home, and there's a bunch of goons waiting for him at his house. So the... Big time racketeer, Marty Augustine, and his gang of goons. And as it turns out, Lennox was carrying some cash for Mr. Augustine. And he wants to know where the money is. So they, you know, they upend his house. What did you think of Marty Augustine here and and this actor's portrayal, you know, as he bashes his girlfriend's face in with a Coke bottle? I didn't mind the 
actor, I mean, you know, small, petite man trying to act tough that's been done in many, many movies. Believable. You know, if, if he is in a position of power that way, oh, you know, you got to hit me in the stomach. Oh, I'm tougher than you think, pal. I did like the scene where he, you could see it coming from a mile away, unfortunately. I wish it was filmed a little better, but it was a bit more of a surprise that he, mm. when he did, not that I'm condoning the violence against women, but it, I thought it was a, a decent scene to show and prove himself that, you know, I, I like the line, you know, I care about this lady and I don't even like you. So imagine yeah. what I'm going to do to you. Yeah. So I liked that kind of build up and setup. I thought that portion was effective. You know, this guy's a little, you know, little weasel of a man looks the part, acts the part. I think he acted well for the role. He was casted well for the role that was supposed to be. And then I ended up actually liking the relationship between Marlo and I believe the guy's Harry, the other, you know, side. Oh, the- Side the guy was supposed to tail him, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. So I think yeah. I, I liked that back and forth where, you know, he, he knows exactly who kind of this guy is and he's, you know, he's catching him, but he's being nice to him saying, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You know, yeah. you can follow me, but, you know, straighten up that tie, you know? Yeah. No, I, I really like that. I like that piece as well where he's, he's like, here's the address where I'm going in case you lose me. Yeah. Straighten that tie. I thought that was a nice a bit of humor there. That was, uh, that was I quite that was effective. I thought that was yeah. effective. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, the, what I have for you then is and instead of just moving the plot along, which we always do, is but just maybe I thought I'd ask you, what's your take on the character of Marlowe in this film so far with respect to how he's dealing, how he's portrayed in the book and is Elliot Gould portraying it accurately or is he giving his own spin to it? Yeah, that's a good question. I would have to say both. Elliot Gould's a pretty, he's a fairly distinctive guy. His voice has a certain tone to it. He has a certain cadence of speaking that's, it's very Elliot Gould, if you, if you will. I felt at the end it was very Elliot Gould. Here he felt a little. I felt in the beginning, the first half of the movie, he was a little different. I don't know. I I, I didn't really pick up on that. I find that his comedic tendencies fit well with the character. So you know, obviously you have a guy who's hardened. He's very cynical. He's a guy that I mean, he doesn't give a shit about convention. He seems to be a guy who's about loyalty, about friendship. And I think that Elliot Gould does a really good job portraying this character. I've only ever read one other uh, Chandler novel with Philip Marlowe as the protagonist. And and I think he's actually actually think he's a very good fit, especially as they try to modernize the character a a little bit. So. So, yeah, I think he works. I think it works great, actually. I, I really enjoyed it. I think it was a good choice. Same as. It's not quite the same thing, but you know, when they cast Michael Keaton as Batman, people are like, "Why are they throwing this comedian as as Batman?" But it's a guy who can, you know, sometimes actors who have more feel for comedy have a good feel for natural cadence for speaking. They're able to sort of that's how people are. They have humor in their voice. They they switch between you know, different tones, their their cadence can change depending on the situation. I think comedians have a good handle on that. And I think Elliot Gould is a good example of a type of actor where he can, where he can bring that. So, you know, when we're talking about where he's sort of uh, buddying up to the guy who's supposed to be following him. It's funny 
No, no, uh, I, I agree. I mean, I like, while I, I'm maybe not, I won't praise him as much as maybe you are, but I think he's doing a pretty good job. I think the beginning of the movie I really liked, and I like these scenes with the mobster tailing him, you know, the kind of subordinate mobster tailing him in that kind of relationship. But I felt that, I think the relationship between, that we'll get into between him and, is it uh, Mr. Wade, Robert, is it Robert Wade? Uh, Roger. Roger Wade. And Eileen, you know, he kind of... Felt a little different in those scenes a little. And I thought it wasn't as consistent of a performance. And then at the end. But that's Mm. just me. But I think these scenes so far is he's doing a a pretty good job. He's pretty interesting, but he doesn't have a lot of layers. But in the end, I don't think he's supposed to because this is just your, as you said, a hard-boiled detective. He's just in it to solve a mystery. Yeah, he's in it to solve a mystery. And I, you know, I kind of get the impression that, and even from the character again, from reading the novel, or even if you just watch the film, he doesn't really care. Yeah. You know, that they're going to carve his eyeballs out or cut his dick off. It's almost like, you know, what, you know, whatever, do what you're going to do, just fucking get it over with and stop talking about it. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the impression that I get from this character. So Marlowe discovers that there's some connection with the Wades because he, he trails, he tails Marty back to the Wade's residence there, he knows that, you know, there's some relationship there he doesn't know. So the next day he heads back over to their house and, you know, he's pumping up for a bit of information. Roger's drinking again. There's some tension between him and his wife. He hangs out for a bit. And this is where he discovers that, you know, they live down the beach from the Lennoxes. Roger knew them a little bit and, uh, you know, there isn't really much discussion over to over what the extent of that relationship is, because obviously Roger's kind of climbing up a little bit. And he's drunk anyway, so it's hard to figure out. What do you think of Roger, though? You know, he reminded me of, like, Hemingway. Yeah, I was just going to say. I'm not too aware of Hemingway in his real life, but it seemed, I just remember descriptions of him just drinking, writing, sitting on a beach, and then I would assume that this was would be he, this character was modeled after him. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't find any specific reference, but completely, I completely agree with you. Uh, Hemingway was a big dude, a drinker. A legend has it that Hemingway wrote "Standing Up" on top of his refrigerator. Like that's kind of how big he was. So yeah, I, that's exactly what I what I got here. Uh, Rogers obviously meant to be depicted as a, a big, powerful guy, but. Uh, a huge fucking mess. Mm. And, and I enjoyed yeah. watching him. Yeah. yeah. I, I thought he was actually one of the stronger aspects of the movie. I was glued every time he was on screen. Yeah, I liked him a- as well. So the actor who played Roger Wade, gentleman by the name of Sterling Hayden, <laughs> working actor. Now, I'm, self- I'm self-conscious now. Thanks. No problem. For, for, for using it. So thanks a lot. That's my job. <laughs> yeah, of course it is. Yeah. You have one job, Harry. One job. <laughs> According to uh, an interview with uh, Robert Altman, a lot of the dialogue between Sterling Hayden and Elliot Gould when they when they had their scenes together was ad-libbed. Hmm. And the reason for that was because Sterling Hayden was so high on booze and marijuana at the time that it was impossible to give him any direction anyway. So uh, they just sort of... It worked. Yeah, it, ah, I, to- I think it totally worked. Exactly. Yeah, I thought yeah. it worked. I thought these were some of the stronger scenes of the movie. I wasn't too much of a fan of all the mob scenes, except for, as I said, the subordinate always trailing Marlowe. And I liked the first couple of scenes with Marlowe and, and, and setting up the film, establishing him as a loner and a private eye and him mm-hmm. and his cat. But aside from those scenes, I liked 
I like these scenes. And mm-hmm. going back to um, the actress who's playing Eileen, I thought she did a really good job here because you could see the insecurities that she has, the fears that she has, because she knows that her husband could just let loose any minute. You know, she's always trying to get Marlo to stay, even though that there's other people there. They had that party the yeah. one time. She's yeah. always trying to get him to stay, whether that's a ruse, because and that's where I kind of have my problem with the movie is that when it was revealed later that she is having the affair and she's really behind some of this stuff. And I mean, not really behind any murders, I guess, but she's siding with Terry as a murder. So she's a, an accomplished murder in a sense, but it was a little disappointing because I was hoping that there would have something from an earlier scene would have established herself as a little bit more cunning instead. She, yeah. but she does play the battered wife fearful wife very well again not that i'm condoning women should be battered and bruised no <laughs> uh, but i'm but she does she played the role well i thought it was very convincing and realistic oh yeah yeah I, I agree yeah she she does a good job of portraying the battered wife and i mean obviously it helps that they chose the right actor to you you believe it you believe through his performance that you know if you're it's a very physically imposing guy and it looks like he he could go off at at any moment yeah so it i so yeah i think it i think it works very well in in a horrifying way you know sadly that this is a situation that is not fiction uh, so many so many occasions of course but anyway so they have a couple of drinks so marlo has a couple drinks with roger on the beach you know again like finds out that he knew the lennoxes and you know he wants to do some further digging so he heads down to mexico to the town where lennox allegedly took his own life small little mexican town you know obviously some you know poverty roads aren't paved the coroner is also you know the photographer is also you know he, not a lot of structure going on down here but he sees the photos of Terry's dead body, and uh, he confirms that Lennox shot himself. Uh, still, obviously, some unanswered questions, but so be it. So, hmm. uh, so a little bit of misdirection here, both to Marlowe and to the audience. So we're, you know, we're getting proof. We see the pictures of a bullet hole in in Lennox's head, and uh, you know, what did you think of this sort of this sojourn down to to Mexico? Did you were you buying it at this point, or did you have questions? Same as Marlowe at this point. I would say I had more questions. I thought the fact that when a movie like this takes him down out of his, he's you know, making a special trip, the movie's taking a special trip here. This feels a little bit more cliche and it's like the, the you know, the light bulb goes off in your head and this is the moment in the movie I said, he's alive. That's, okay. that, that's where I first got the, the seed planted in the back of my mind. Okay, this guy's alive. You know, unfortunately, it's just, if this was the way it was written in the book and it was in the 50s, I can understand it might have not been, you know, as cliche as it is now in movies such as this, but this is where I start to sit. You know, unfortunately, you know, when for us in the year 2016, you're looking for the twist, unfortunately, right? That's true. So it's a little different. So I'm actively, not passively, I'm actively thinking here, where's the twist? There's got to be a twist because this movie just cannot just be just this simple. Because why is he on this case? Why is he here? So then obviously, (laughs) because he's hired by Eileen, then I put two to two together. Okay, then maybe her and him are... The ones behind it. Yeah. That's where the seeds was planted. When he went to Mexico, this is where I kind of put two and two together. So at the end, it didn't surprise me. Yeah. And I, you know what? I, I think I agree fault. with you there. That's yeah. kind of more my fault. And I guess 
modern audiences can kind of pick apart older movies because these are now even more cliche because we're used to it. Yeah. And that's part of what frustrates me about about movies nowadays is everything's got to have a twist now. Mm -hmm. So it's so predictable when you watch modern movies. You know, you're like, okay, well, this... This is why my cousin and I just want Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, and Sylvester Stallone to just play poker. The whole movie is just them playing poker around a table. And they just stare at each other. <laughs> Nothing fucking happens. They just stare at each other. That's a work of art right there. I'd watch... I mean, I, I'm not saying I would watch it. No, they could have a couple of one You know, they could just have a, a casual conversation. I'm telling you, it'd be great. <laughs> I'd love to see what happens if Sly calls him in that point, greedy and lazy. I believe that's how he described Bruce Willis. Well, you know what? That is what he described. And I hope he does. Does because then I would definitely watch that shit and ad lib like Bruce doesn't know that he's going into that situation and Sly starts talking shit. I'd watch that. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, you know, I pay a Hollywood- premium to watch that in fucking IMAX 3D. The Expendables 4. Bruce Willis tries to stab Sylvester Stallone in the dick <laughs> because he called him a lazy, greedy fucker. Patent pending. Anyway, okay, so he heads back to California and there's a party at the. Wade's house and Roger's just getting roaring drunk. There's some guests there, but uh, he's being a dick. And there's Dr. Berenger again, trying to to shake him out for the the rest of the money. I kind of like this scene here because we see the vulnerability under Roger's bluster. Dr. Berenger's not having any shit. He's like a third of this dude's size and he just fucking slaps him in the face. I loved that scene. Like this guy's not taking any shit. Give me my money, and it actually works. Like it actually disarms him here. Did you did you buy this? I did because he's the doctor, so he knows how to push his buttons. Yeah, he knows how you know because he's you know psychoanalyzed this guy, so he knows how he'll react. So he's got yeah. the advantage, right? So that seems realistic. He's going to use Roger as prey, just you know, and screw him out of money, whether he deserved it, whether he was really owed that or not, yeah. deserved it or not. But what I understand that this kind of then partially will drive Roger to commit suicide, whether through embarrassment or the failure or whatever, whatever. Maybe this was just the straw that broke the camel's back for Roger. But was this really the MacGuffin to really make Roger commit suicide? And then this is how the movie progresses and gets, this is the problem I'm having is hmm. because you set this guy up. I, you know, like you're, you're trying, you remember a long time ago when we had this, when we first started our podcast, we had this conversation of you're showing me something. So there's a payoff later. Otherwise, why are you showing me right so i see this doctor here is the payoff only so he gets the money and then roger just commits suicide because of that and that just coincidentally leads gets eileen free i find this all very convenient and loose i was hoping that maybe indirectly there was something else going on with the doctor but again also that would be cliche so it's just um, there's something wrong i'm finding here with this story and I find there's not enough layers here between for Marlowe and the other actors in play because it's a great scene. I agree with you. I love this scene. It's just, I feel it doesn't really go anywhere. Like there's no other payoff except that, okay, this just drove him to commit suicide. If that's really what happened. Yeah, right. I see what you're saying. So it doesn't really have any relevance in the overall conspiracy, if you will. It's mm-hmm. just what drives, you know, Roger to walk himself into the ocean, thereby uncovering something else. I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think Roger was already on the edge for something like this. I 
I don't know. I guess if you believe that he was already at the end of his rope. No, no, I have no problem. I I believe that this was, he was at the end of his rope. As I said, that if he was already having a lot of issues and he was, and he obviously he didn't enjoy his life with his wife, but then he would not want to leave her. Cause I think we had that scene where, you know, he, when she says she threatens, I'm going to leave you. And then he actually snaps out of it and he's scared. He doesn't want to lose her, Mm -hmm. but you know, he's Mm -hmm. lost the threat of losing her, the threat of, Losing, you know, his dependence on alcohol because he can't, you know, he doesn't want to be sober. So that sobriety is a fear of his. And then the embarrassment of that happening, you know, he's got the money. So he's got that power over him and he's lost that. And then also the embarrassment in front of their friends Mm -hmm. and in front of Marlo, right? Mm -hmm. You know, he's kind of, you know, insulting Marlo every day, Marlboro man and, you know, whatever. And I think call him a couple other names because he's not impressed with him. And this happens in front of him, the new stranger in his life. I understand that this gets him over the edge and he says, you know, I've had it. I'm done. So uh, he goes and commits suicide. Fine. But as you said, the overall relevance of the story doesn't have an impact. Even though I, I enjoyed the death scene of him going out into the ocean, I thought that was a very that was my favorite scene in the movie in terms of mm-hmm. filming. Which, if if you want to get into, we can get into it later. But I I just have a problem with the the setups of how this movie goes from one situation to another. Even though it feels naturalistic, it just I find it's too convenient. Mm-hmm. Like things shit happens in life, right? Yeah, uh, you know this private eye. He's just sitting here. He's getting involved with people's lives and shit happens. Okay, realistic. Uh, it's not like it's a stretch, but from a dramatic perspective, it's not dramatic. Hmm. If I don't know if you understand where I'm coming from here, dramatic and relevant. I think that I do, and you know, I think you're you're kind of making the case for, or you're or you're highlighting the the difficulty in reconciling what works dramatically from a conflict perspective and what. It's not just that. It's also like getting Marlowe from point A to point yeah. B. Yeah. You know, things are just coming easy for him and also easy for Eileen. And, you know, <laughs> and then at the end, you know, we'll we'll get to the end and we can talk about it and then why he's so upset. I mean, I don't know. It's just, it feels like the story, there's a problem with a narrative structure of the story. Not from like something happens, something happens, something happens, and Marlo ends up here. It yeah. just, it's not interesting. There's no layers. It just happens. Yeah. And he's just an observer. And I guess that's maybe part of the genre. I don't know. That's why I have, I'll be honest, maybe this is one of the reasons why I haven't watched a lot of noir films or neo noir films or why I'm, it's not, I'm not a big fan of the genre because. Shit just happens, and it's like I don't find that interesting. Yeah, exactly. It's it's like this happens in the story, and therefore he's able to move to the next step. Whereas if this if this beat didn't happen, he wouldn't have been able to get to the next. Yeah, and it's too easy. Love. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's too easy, too convenient, lazy writing. If it's lazy, but again, maybe this is part of the genre, and maybe you can enlighten me on that. Is this something that always happens? For like these detective stories, because to me, that's what I'm saying. This feels like a something I see on Columbo or Murder, She Wrote. It's just, he gets, you have to wrap it up in an hour. You have a two minute scene here, a five minute scene here, a five minute scene here, a five minute scene Mm -hmm. here. It's very convenient for the detective hero, the main character from getting from point A to point B or point D. Yeah. I mean, as far as the, you know, the genre goes, well, whether it's a film or a, literary standpoint i mean uh, you know i'm not a big reader of detective fiction or a big you know i haven't watched a lot of you know movies in the genre so i you know i couldn't say if it's sort of a genre trope or not i suspect it it quite possibly is you know one thing that's good about the about detective fiction often is 
it's more character driven because it, the mystery unfolding is usually dependent on, you know, the detective, whether it's Philip Marlowe or whomever else to, you know, to untie all of the knots in order for the plot to unfold. Right. And, and I, and I think you just kind of identified a big flag for yeah. me on this because he doesn't react a lot until I guess until the beach scene where he kind of has a little bit more proof. Right. That he doesn't believe Terry was really the one. Now he's more convinced. And then he kind of, you know, tells the police to F off. And that's really the only scene outburst of emotion you really get from him. That's right. Yeah. Because yeah. he yeah, doesn't really, exactly. yeah, you're not really getting a lot out of Marlowe, unfortunately. No, he, yeah, he doesn't quite emotionally engage until this moment there when they, you know, so they see, you know, they have dinner, they see him walk out into the ocean to kill himself. Great scene, by the way. I, yeah. I loved, not only did I like the dinners, and this is where I kind of was hoping maybe the movie would have gone someplace else in a relationship between Eileen and Marlowe, and he would have gotten a little bit more involved in some kind of twist, and then he would have been left with a tough choice. But instead, I thought that was maybe where they were going, but they were just ended up just being kind of light friends, and, and then he commits suicide. But I loved how it was filmed. I loved seeing Roger go out into the water. It's all real. You see Elliot Gould, his character, and he's yeah. him. And Eileen, the Nina, the actress, going out into the water, and they're actually in there. They're getting yeah. pushed back by the waves. They're trying to swim out. They can't. I thought this was filmed. It was great filming here. This scene here was very well shot. Yeah, I, I agree. I like when they're talking and like they're, you know, you can see in the reflection that he's going out and we don't, you know, they don't notice it. We're noticing, we see him, but sort of, you know, just in the reflection. Yeah, I agree. I think that was uh, very well filmed. And yeah, they, they go out there and very minimalist. It's just the camera, a light. And yeah, that's the actors out there. Those are some serious waves. Yeah. You know, yeah, that, that was very good. And, you know, some of the shot you can see, you can still see Roger out there. And then after a while, he's just he's just gone. So uh, yeah, very, very. You wouldn't. Nobody'd ever film anything like that today. There's no. Yeah. Yes and no. Probably. Not. Probably not. Well, no. It'd be lots of cuts and yeah, it'd be probably more the cuts. stunt double and. Well, I'm sure that was. I think you saw like Roger the a the actor Stir uh, whatever his name is um Henry Sterling is that what you said I already forget his name oh <laughs> Sterling or whatever Sterling Hayden Sterling, Sterling Hayden. Hayden so he yeah. he went out and I think you see well he, that of, was a double that was a that, double yeah you see a real shot of him in in the lower tide in the shallower yeah. end and then I'm sure it was a stunt double going out probably yeah. got picked up by a boat off screen because it's getting dangerous in the dark out there with the sharks because I'm sure this is. Off the U.S. coastline there, so and also just drowning. You know, it's pitch black. So. I, I would have been worried about drowning as opposed to sharks, but yeah, probably both. Anyway, so just getting back to the scenes in the movie. So we kind of cut. It's a little bit later. You know, there's a big crowd is formed. The police are there, and he he confronts Eileen at this point. He's kind of put together that he could have been the one to kill. Sylvia Lennox, big dude. You know, they knew the Lennoxes. He has a temper. He's a drunk. Yeah. Yeah. He's a drunk. And, and she admits that, yeah, she not only, yeah, not only was he having an affair, but she thinks that it's quite possible that uh, he was the one to, to do it. He tries to appeal to the police, but they're like, you know, the case is closed. Go fuck yourself. Basically, I don't have any respect for this, uh, for this private eye. What I actually liked about this little exchange here is a fairly realistic portrayal of a guy who's drunk but trying to be sober and trying to to be lucid 
you know, he's sort of slightly slurring his words. I know it's a small detail, but... Which I found a little odd, because... If he was truly drunk, I'd buy it. But they just sat down, and he's holding a wine bottle on the beach, but he asked for a beer in the dinner, if you recall. Yeah. And he, they hardly, she didn't serve him yet. And even if she did, and we didn't see it because we're focused on Roger, he would have only have had one beer. Well, I think he had already, I, I believe that he had already been drinking because he said he was just going to finish his beer out of her wine glass. No, I think he, she was going to serve a beer. But anyways, she, I thought anyway. it was. But he wasn't drunk or slurring his words then, and he was able no. to get out and go and run, run pretty good, <laughs> getting to the water. And that I found it a little. That's a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, he, yeah, because he was he was sober when he ran out there. This yeah. seen that, way. and then he's drunk when he's talking to the cops. There might have been a, a bit of a cut there. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, so uh, you know the the cops aren't giving him the time of day. So Roger's dead, lost at sea. And, you know, he thinks he might have a couple of a couple of answers. So he goes to see Marty again. So he's at his office there. And this is where we, you know, piece of trivia. We get to see a uh, a pre-famous Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's <laughs> fantastic. I tell you, fantastic. <laughs> my first one. They give me nine. <laughs> Boasting like a boss porn stash as well. I love I love the porn stash in Arnie here. And holy fuck, is this guy a beast? I mean, <laughs> holy shit! You don't see now that's a beast. <laughs> yeah, that's a beast. Not Ben Affleck. That is a beast. No, this is oh, like this is a this is a genetic anomaly beast <laughs> right here. Well, he is the oak. Is <laughs> the oak? He is the oak, man. Holy Christ! I forgot how big he was. I mean, he's still a, even now in his seventies. He's a big dude, but like I forgot that he was. I love how he, when Marty says, everyone take their shirts off, he's the first guy to really yeah. <laughs> look at me. His shirt was lines. halfway off by the time he suggested everybody take their clothes <laughs> off, man. <laughs> hey, look at me. And he's first put my pants down. Look at me. <laughs> it's fantastic. Take a look. <laughs> <laughs> I love that he's in this. It's just, it's just. It's just a fucking great little nugget. That, oh, I know. That, it's funny. It's, it's so funny. What do you, I mean, what did you think of this this scene here? You know, Marlo goes. They kind of shake him down a little bit. How he finds the five thousand dollar bill on Marlo's person. I have a question for you now. Yeah. Obviously, this is there's no five thousand dollar bills floating around. But I mean, I'm not going to. Is this something? I forget what they call it because even in the film they call it something of a rarity. It's only printed maybe the one time. There's only a few of these floating around. Yeah. Is this an actual real deal? Like, did they have $5,000 bills? I'm assuming no. Actually, they, yes, they did. In the United States, they actually, they, there were a number of what they call large denominations. So they had $500 bills, $1,000 bills, a $5,000 bill. They even had a $10,000 bill. And there was a $100,000 note, which wasn't a bill. It was more of a I don't know what you call it, but it was a it was like certificate. Yeah, it was certificate. Like it was uh, like a gold certificate mm-hmm. uh, printed after they were kind of taken off the gold exchange. But yes, it was a real thing. The five thousand dollar bill was printed originally in nineteen thirty four, and you know there were only you know not very many put into circulation. They were recalled in nineteen sixty nine. President Nixon issued an executive order to recall and destroy the notes. So there. 
estimates is a couple of hundred that might still be out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, it was a, it was a, a real thing. But very, and by the time I figured uh, you'd know since you work in you're uh, in banking. So. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a real thing. By 1973, when the movie came out, it would have been extraordinarily rare, mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, even more even rarer now. The picture of James Madison, who was the fourth president of the United States, which is, you know, he kind of refers to it as a James Madison in the film and in the novel as well. This this was a feature of the $5,000 bill, which he just called a James Madison uh, the whole time. So it's hard to say. Estimates are there, there are fewer than, than, you know, 300 of these left. But I mean, you look at it like the one they had in the film. I mean, that was probably a replica, but that is exactly what the $5,000 note looks like. I, I mean, I, I, yeah, when I remember when I first saw it, I was like, I'm not sure that's accurate, but yeah, yeah, it's out there. So kind of a neat little detail, not really relevant to the story, except that they try to tie, you know, because it's so rare, they can tie the note, you know, Marty can tie that bill to uh, back to Terry Lennox, which is, you know, sort of, which is the point of having it there in the first place. Yes. So kind of a neat little detail. Here in Canada, uh, we have $1,000 notes, which they don't print anymore. Uh, the last series of those, I think, was printed in the 70s. You still see them occasionally, but uh, but very, very rare. Obviously, $100 notes is sort of the highest they go. In Europe, the euro, you can get 500 euro notes. That's kind of, as far as developed nations go, that's sort of the maximum that you, you kind of see. Did you buy the, you know, Marty's like, you know, he's the one who tells everybody to strip down. Mm-hmm. Did you buy this? I didn't buy this. No, yeah, no, no. I didn't buy it. I don't know. And then I think it was just as he strips, that's when the money falls out, right? So yeah, yeah. So I think it was just an action. They couldn't think of a better way to maybe have the guy get frisked <laughs> and take the wallet and, oh, here, boss, here you go. So maybe it was just there. So they say, hey, okay, we got Arnold Schwarzenegger, body, Mr. Mr. Universe. How can we get it with his shirt off? So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know what? It, it kind of felt the same for me. What otherwise is, I mean. Because you don't hire you know, him for nothing. So we got him and then, okay, let's buy a scene where his shirt's off. What's the best way we could do that? And how can we make him look even bigger than everybody else? So it's like, okay, well, compare him all to the people who are scrawny and don't work out. There you go. Well, I, I kind of like the the contrast because in the in the first scene with Marty, he's like, you know, I'm the pinnacle of physical health, right? I'll go ahead and punch me in the stomach. <laughs> then we get here, and he's he's, he's a dude. Yeah. yeah, he's a dude. He's yeah, nothing. he looks like Val Kilmer in Batman Forever. He's just a regular guy <laughs> under all that bluster. Anyway, but uh, Marlo gets out of a sticky situation, so instead of getting his dick cut off, the money magically shows up at Marty's office here, and Marlo's free to go. We get the scene where he's chasing after he sees Eileen in the, she's in her convertible in the street and he's running after her. She won't stop. He's calling after her. And then he basically gets run over by a car. Isn't that, didn't she just run over him? She didn't run over him. Oh, that was, because I was going to say that didn't make sense to me. But then yeah. um, thank, that's a good, good thing that that's not the case. I thought it was literally that she ran over him. No, uh, no, uh, he, okay. yeah, he was cry, he was running across the street to try to catch up again. And, and yeah, somebody else, yeah, just a random car hammered him in the, in the middle of the street. Hmm. So he ends up in the hospital. He's laid up for three days and gets out, heads back to her house. And we, we get to the house and, you know, they're they're basically, you know, there's movers there, they're moving out, the real estate agent's there. So she's gone. And, at the, you know, at this point, he's he decides, OK, it's time to get to the bottom of this, heads back to Mexico. And this is when he's kind of piecing everything together again and, you know, figures out that the suicide was faked. 
that Terry's still alive, tracks him down at his place, is chilling in his hammock there, approaches him, confronts him. Turns out that all along, Terry was, in fact, the one who murdered his wife. He was the one having the affair with Eileen and... The wife found out. Well, the wife found out because Roger found out, told his wife. She freaked out. She knew he was carrying or running money for Marty, threatened to go to the police, and then he killed her, took the money to Mexico, faked his suicide, wrote the confession to get the cops off his trail, sent the money back to Marty to get him off the trail, and, you know, sends for Eileen at some point after Roger kills himself and everything's tied up in a neat bow. Marlowe doesn't apparently take too kindly to being jerked off like this. Pulls out his gun, bang, he's dead, and movie's over. So that's a long goodbye. Yeah, so, I didn't I didn't mind the shooting scene. Makes sense. There's justification, you know, because Terry calls him, well, you know, I knew you'd be kind of the patsy because you're kind of a loser. And then, you know, he didn't take kind to that. And he said, no one would care. And he goes, well, I care. And shoots him. And it's justified. I like the scene where he kind of slowly pulls it out and... I think Elliot Gould played that scene off pretty good. I like that. But what I did not like after that is his kind of singing in the rain dance as he's leaving the premises. And, you know, like, I think he passes Eileen and he was kind of calmly walking, which is fine. But then he starts kind of going as, you know, does his little Dick Van Dyke stuff as he's continuing down the road after that. And that's how the movie ends. I didn't like the Dick Van Dyke happy dances he was doing. Felt that was kind of out of character because, I mean, that's just a small little nitpick. Uh, well, yeah. it's not like he clicked his heels together. Well, he was kind of like doing his little, you know, pulling out the harmonica. He did. He, he did he yeah, did, the harmonica. Did, well, he did do actually a little hop ste- uh, skip and a little thing and he starts pumping his hands in the air in celebration. And it's a little happy little moment for, for the hero. And it's like, well, the tone didn't feel right. He I just his arms I, in the air? Yeah, he did. I, you I, sure? I, yes, 100% sure. Watch it again. All right, I'll go watch it again. Yeah. I mean, there was the harmonica, which was a little forced because he picked up the harmonica from that rando in the hospital. Yeah. Uh, which was... A little weird, too. It was not necessary. No, none of that was necessary. No. Hoping for something else, but from that guy in the hospital, I thought, okay, who's this guy? That might be interesting, but nope. Yeah, that was just a uh, mechanism to get the harmonica. So get the harmonica, that, which was that didn't make which any weird. sense. Yeah, no, really that, weird. No, that didn't make it. That didn't make sense. Yeah, yeah I mean that was uh, like. Then not only that, it was you. You could have just seen the harmonica on the side desk, but he actually has like almost like a two minute conversation with him, and like he can't hear what this guy's saying. He's going, Ugh. and it's like, oh, I'm just gonna take your harmonica. Thank you. Uh, I mean, what was this? I don't know. Yeah, that was weird, wasn't it? Like, I didn't understand why that happened at all. A little odd. Very odd. A little odd. Yeah, I'm not not a fan of the third act. I think it kind of falls flat. You know, there's some odd scenes, as we just talked about. I think the justification of... I mean, the the surprise that Terry's alive is not much of a surprise to me. Mm. You see it coming a mile away. Something had to happen. There had to be some kind of twist. Otherwise, why is this movie even existing? Or why is the story even existing? So something had to happen there. But it's very cliche, yet yeah, ended kind of odd with the happy dance. But I did like how he passed Eileen. Um, so that was kind of a nice shot. And I, and I like him shooting. I like the performance of Elliot Gould in that small little window where he's talking to Terry and didn't like how Terry was talking to him. And then he just shot him. Yeah. And then he you see him just, you know, casually, seriously walking away. And I like that. And I kind of wish the movie just ended on that. Yeah. Passing Eileen and just he walks another few steps. And yeah. He's done. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think that Elliot Gould did a good job in that 
in that moment there. I bought his frustration. I don't know what the word would be for it, but he just kind of had enough of being jerked around here. And he wanted to see justice done in a sense, but he also justice, but like, you know what? Fuck this guy. Mm -hmm. Fuck him. Boom. What's interesting, I think, is in some of the marketing materials, like if you look at the original poster and you see Elliot Gould holding a gun. Almost looks like James Caan. Kind of. Kind of looks like James Caan, who has also played Philip Marlowe. On the DVD case, you've got a scene, you've got Elliot Gould on the beach holding a gun, which never happened in the movie. And that is uh, completely out of character for if Philip Marlowe is not a violent man, does not use a gun. So, you know, kind of just goes to show you that you know how how marketing kind of works. He's got to have a got to have a gun. Yeah, or one could say something something had to happen for the audience for some kind of payoff. No, I, I and, agree. And something I think had that's, to happen, and I think that's why that gun is there. Well, because I mean, other, I, I think it's I, a little dishonest in uh, from a, uh, in the marketing material. It's a little dishonest to show him holding a gun, but I understand why they do it because if he's not holding a gun, who is this guy? You can't have him just sort of standing there smoking a cigarette because that that would be the accurate thing just to show him fucking lighting a match off of every material and, known and that'd, be a, that'd be a cooler poster honestly that would be a cooler poster that guy lights a match off a fucking pane of glass i know it's a couple awesome. of times i, I yeah. loved all those little him lighting it up every time it's pretty cool. yeah and what's interesting is you know, again from the time period they couldn't really do it but in the novel he smokes a pipe only not a cigarette. pipe? Oh, yeah. pipe. Okay. He smoked a cigarette, a cigarette a couple times, but it's a pipe that he smokes. Oh, yeah, sign of the times. Yeah, sign of the times. You can't smoke a pipe in 1973. So, you know, I think the ending worked. You know, worked for me. I don't remember the happy dance, but I'll provisionally take your word for it. But I reserve the right to revisit that later. But I thought Elliot Gould does, does a very good job. His deadpan delivery through the whole film, I think, itself has a payoff here because you get the impression of a guy who's already operating like his baseline is end of his rope and you know people fuck with him and he can take it and that's fine but this is some shit that he's just not going to stand for and and i really like that he doesn't like being used he doesn't like being taken for a fool and basically lennox has used him through the film so i really bought that i thought that was i didn't mind the payoff the problem is is because and we've even talked about this is he just kind of doesn't give a fuck as a setup for the character. He's a little hard. He's been around the block. He's a loner. You were meant to believe he doesn't care until the end. And I guess that's kind of the twist, which is nice to see, but it, it's not that engrossing because mm-hmm. I meant to believe he just doesn't give a fuck anyways. So it's not, doesn't mean that much to the audience. It's more of just the dramatic shock that he shoots him is kind of where the payoff is. Because if yeah. he doesn't really give a fuck, then why does he shoot him? Well, I think the reason – because he doesn't give a fuck, but he spends the whole movie defending Terry. He tells people there's no way he did it. He spends time in jail. No, I get it. It's just All the, of that. And it's like, I did all of this. And he screwed me For over. you. And yeah. he, like he – because one of the things that he actually does care about is loyalty and friendship. And those are the things that are undermined, that Terry undermines – and I'm assuming that's got to be a, one of the only thematic points of this movie is that mm. loyalty means shit to some people. I don't yeah. know. Well, I, that's one of the messages is like, well, I, I mean, I don't know. It's not really a, a moral of the story is. It's it's more of this is what happened to this guy and he should have known better and he didn't. And there you go. You know, so he shot him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. He needs to live in the, in the Brazil world. You know, don't you know, report a friend. 
Yeah. Don't suspect a friend. Report. Report. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you another question now before right. um, we wrap it up. The you know I'm surprised you didn't bring up John Williams scored this movie. Yeah. And the constant reuse of that theme, the long goodbye, and the song. Everyone's singing it. Everyone's humming it. Yeah. And then obviously it's a it's a let him off. It's a theme that John Williams uses, which is no surprise. He picks a theme because he kind of wrote the theme and then he uses it as kind of the the melodramatic music. But then it doesn't just stop there. People are singing it. It's on the radio. Characters are singing it. Marty sings it. Roger sings it, I believe. I think even Marlo kind of hums it a little bit himself. And it's everywhere. What did you think of that use and why and was it effective? Yeah, you know, that's a good question because, you know, know, watching the movie and I see John Williams' name pop up. I'm like, oh, you know, great. I mean, it's John Williams. Like, obviously, the score is going to be great. And it's really only this song that permeates. Just from my research, it seems that, you know, it's kind of by design to be a minimalist score. And really, it's just the, you know, this song. It seems that Altman kind of wanted it put together in this way where uh, sort of different arrangements of the same music. But, you know, for what purpose? You know, I don't know. It, it it seems to be sort of a another example of. I mean, if you take a look at the title, "The Long Goodbye." I mean, this is the the goodbye that Lennox is is saying to you know to Marlowe in one sense, right? I, I think the music is kind of emblematic of that, where you know every piece of the song of the arrangement is you know kind of another layer of. It's almost like the goodbye of this concept of friendship and loyalty to to Marlowe. Like this, there's no friendship. There's no loyalty. This stuff is saying goodbye. It's a long, painful process. And every aspect of his life that he encounters is reinforcing that goodbye. I think the music is meant to sort of reinforce that. And, and that's a great point. And I like the thematic use and that concept. What I did not like is that every character is singing. It. Mm. It's a little on the nose. It's a little goofy. I was actually chuckling and rolling my eyes at the same time. Maybe having, you know, it's just kind of like Brazil, which was kind of an interesting way that Gilliam did it, is that it was just a song and just it's stuck in your head. So maybe he could have heard it on the radio after hearing learning of Terry's death and that's just stuck in his head and maybe only Marlowe is kind of humming it himself. And then obviously John mm. Williams is kind of adding to that through an orchestral score with that theme, even if it was minimalistic, I think that would have been more effective. What I hated mm. was that every fucking character was singing it. Yeah, because that wouldn't, and that wouldn't happen weird. in reality. No, right? it's just yeah. dumb. Oh, my God. It's a yeah. stylistic choice, and I, I think it backfired. I think it was terrible. That, and that's Altman, in my opinion, I think. That's Altman making that decision. Well, and I would say it's most certainly Altman making making the decision. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's hard. Because then if this is really the long goodbye for just Marlowe, he should be the only one really hearing it in his head or humming it to himself. Like, as I said, he could have heard it originally on the radio. And after that, he's it's just stuck in his head because he's lost his friend. Yeah. And then that's the theme through the movie Only he that's only related to him, not related to fucking Marty. You know, if you really wanted to do, make it really entertaining, Arnie should have been fucking humming this in every scene he was in. <laughs> Whatever the theme goes, so. That'd be my ringtone. 
<laughs> so I'm not a fan of the way the artistic choices of using yeah. this theme. It, I think it really was odd, and I hate to say, it, laughable. It it, it, it kind of be the same. It kind of be like if if Luke Skywalker was humming the Force theme. No, he, he we just the you whole, know it, all, all three movies. Luke, be a Jedi tonight. I mean, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I'd hate that, but you're no, that'd be awesome. But that's awesome. that's okay. <laughs> that'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah. I guess I think there's a stylistic choice there. That I mean, I I mean, I totally understand where you're coming from. It doesn't doesn't bother me as much because it's not on the nose as you know Bart Simpson humming the theme to the Simpsons as he's you know hammering mustard packets with a hammer on the carpet or whatever. Di- it's right, but different different genre. That's a satirical yeah, no, I know. Car- that's I know, a satirical right. cartoon. Yeah, 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 I know. So, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, here it's like you're not meant to be you shouldn't be doing this because you well, no, are but now it, it taking me out of the yeah. movie. Yeah, you know? yeah, you're um, right because it it's so obviously not real at that point. So, I don't know, I'm kind of mixed on it. I mean, I get what you're saying. Unless I, he woke up after getting hit by that car and this was all in his head. Then it would have made oh, more God, sense. Oh, God, fuck. Yeah, but... But then, no, no, but then... Then everybody... I need to walk out into the ocean because I hate it when that kind of yeah. shit happens. No, no, so do I. But then that would have made more sense that everybody was humming the same fucking thing. Yeah, no, singing. you're right. I'm just yeah. saying based on that. I think that would have been a yeah. stupid idea, but just the character singing. Yeah, it's yeah, not, it's not real. real. It's done. Yeah. So, okay. So, you know, talking about Robert Altman there, uh, let's just talk about his style and direction absent of the choice of the soundtrack what are your thoughts on on style i need a comparative i just off the top of my head i don't know how many movies of his i've seen are there any other famous movies that he's done that i can compare it against well i I mean i don't know if you've seen mash i have long time ago Uh, more recent items i suppose uh he directed gosford park but that was 2001 Mm -hmm. so that's a while ago uh, which i mean i didn't mind that one myself I haven't seen a lot of his work, so I'm yeah. just going to base it off this. And it was very, I mean, while there were a couple of really good shots, you know, as we talked about the drowning sequence with the, in the waves and the reflection, I liked the beginning of the movie and him, you know, going to the convenience store. We had some good establishing shots of him in the skyline a little bit and, and the surroundings. But aside from that, it felt, I hate to say it, Nothing special and amateurish. I think more, as you had mentioned, it's more what he's bringing to the table is trying to have all of these conversations that are overlapping each other. Mm -hmm. And if that's what he's bringing to the table here, because I think it's more meant for an engaging drama between two characters. Because here you're following Marlowe, and Marlowe's kind of just out of it. He's an observer, but he's not observing a lot of conversation because people are talking to him. But I didn't really feel a lot of overlap except when Roger and Eileen were talking a little bit. And maybe a little bit with the doctor and Roger for a couple of scenes. Aside from that, it was just normal back and forth banter. I really didn't get a lot of that realistic type of dialogue that you had mentioned. If that was kind of his signature move in terms of direction, I didn't get a lot of that here, at least not that I can recall. And because I didn't really see a lot of interesting shots or setups, it just felt a little bland. Hmm. I don't know if that's a one-off for this movie or that's just him and us as a whole. And unfortunately, I can't compare because I haven't seen a lot of yeah. his other work. Yeah, no, fair enough. I think the overlapping dialogue, uh, not too prevalent here. I think, I mean, I noticed it most when he was talking with the police, when he was getting interrogated at the station. But it is sort of, it's his clockwise swirl, if you will. Huh. 
<laughs> Gosford Park actually is a good example where there's like a million characters talking over each other. You can't understand what the fuck's going on. But he, I mean, he's sort of a minimalist from a visual standpoint. I think you, he's what you would call an actor's director, where he he definitely wants his uh, his performers to do what they do. I mean, or, or was. I mean, he's uh, he passed away in 2006, so he, obviously he's not uh, around anymore. I mean, I'd recommend, I don't know, uh, if you've seen MASH or if it's been a while, I'd, I'd suggest revisiting that one. It's a good example of his work, and that's uh, certainly a great film. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I definitely understand what you're saying. You know, performances, I think we've, I think we've talked about, you know, Elliot Gould, obviously, Nina Van Plant. We've kind of tackled that. The, what about the writing? You know, I mentioned Lee Brackett. Typically, I mean, she was a very prolific science fiction author. So how did you find the, the writing of this film from, uh, from that perspective? Hard for me to say. I mean, this is, again, I haven't seen a lot of her films, and I know there were a lot of changes for Empire, but she's still got a credit. I can't compare this to Empire, unfortunately, because no. Empire is my favorite movie of all time, and I don't know how well, how, how much involvement she had in the end in, in terms of the screenplay after Kasdan took a hold of it. But for this, it just felt nothing special, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. you're, you're just a generic movie in terms of the dialogue. Nothing. There wasn't really anything witty or interesting. I know you like the banter when he's being interrogated with the cops. And again, because we've seen it so many times, it's cliche. So Yeah, it, it feels a little cliche. And I just, the only thing I struggle with there is, when is it cliche? I mean, the movie's made in 73. And I've seen a million movies through the 80s and 90s and 2000s. I've seen movies from the 70s and before. It's hard to know, you know, you want if I want to pick something as a cliche, I try to put it in context, you know, if it's the first movie, is it a cliche? You know what I mean? Mm. Or do I think it's a cliche because of the movies that I've seen since it was made? Yeah, no, it's it's interesting, but in the end we are we are part of our time. So yeah. we have to judge it. I mean, the you know, people who it's just like we complain about people who don't like Star Wars. I mean, well, how Star Wars is boring to some people because Fuck those it, guys, it, man. Exactly. So then the people who first watch movies like this and saying this is brilliant for them, but we find it a little slow and cliche or or we poke holes at it, they're going to say, well, fuck us, right? So it's the same thing. Yeah. We're a product of our time. So for us, unfortunately, it is cliche, even though we're trying to say, well, is it truly a cliche because it didn't come first? So you can give it the respect that it deserves. But even then, I think by the time you've hit the 70s, this has been done to death in you know black and white uh, noir movies. Yeah. So I still am on the record thinking that it is cliche. Yeah. I, There's nothing I, I, new that this movie is bringing to the table. No, and I think that you're probably right there. Because An interesting choice to want to adapt this film in the 70s because it's a 20-year-old novel and all of the Marlowe stories have already been done to death for many, many years. What's the point of doing it here? It's not really a satire. It's not really a send-up. So, you know, why why bother at this point? Mm. Right in the 70s. So let's get to your recommendation in Rare Antiquity Evaluation. Harry, is this a Rare Antiquity and would you recommend it? Unfortunately, I have to say no to both. I think um, it is definitely not a Rare Antiquity because, as I mentioned, it's nothing new here. Been done to death before, done better before. There are things to enjoy. There's small sequences, small little nuggets to enjoy in this movie, small little scenes, a couple of moments of good performances. The direction is bland. I mean, there's nothing that I find interesting here. The acting is okay. Nothing great, nothing terrible. But I find there's a lot of holes with the story, which is the main beef here. 
A lot of things happen that are just coincidental, convenient, lazy, and payoffs really aren't there. I'm really struggling to find anything worthwhile to latch onto in this movie. And it's too bad because I think there could have been some interesting pieces if they changed some things around, have a slightly more engaging story and a more engaging lead character. I mean, I think Elliot Gould did okay in the movie. It's just that because he's kind of almost an observer, he's not really that important except being the patsy. Yeah, I really don't, this character really doesn't mean anything else to me. Even though he was justified in shooting his friend Terry at the end. Yeah, it's kind of okay. As in terms of just a regular recommend, as I said, no before, because you can see better movies that are very similar to this in the noir genre that have happened much earlier in, in time. And, and this one, I think you can skip and avoid. I think I agree with a lot of what you said. I think there's a lot of squandered potential here. It's It's a shame that they didn't do more here. I actually want to recommend it because I'm a, I mean, I, I'm a fan of Elliot Gould's. I, I think he does a really good job here as Philip Marlowe. I think the character himself and in Gould's performance is, is worth the price of admission. So just to classify your recommend, is it like a strong, mild, weak? No, it's, I'd say it's a, it's a middle of the road recommend if, if we're classifying it, I, I think it's worth watching for for him and for his performance. I think it's good. I think it's worth watching for that uh, and entertaining enough to to get enjoyment out of. I, I I like the dialogue and the interplay. I think it's it's pretty good. The story itself has holes, and I don't know that it necessarily comes as advertised. And as an aside, the the novel is actually quite excellent. If anybody's uh, interested in in picking up the novel, I'd recommend that. Is the movie a rare antiquity? No, I don't think so. I think I agree with you, Harry. There's there's too many cliches. A lot of what we see here has been done and done better. As much as I like Robert Altman, as much as I like Elliot Gould, and I really do, and in his performance in this one in particular, yeah, check it out. It is not a rare antiquity, unfortunately. That's my opinion there. Any final thoughts on on the long goodbye? Unfortunately, I wish it was a short goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that's uh, the long goodbye, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Harry, thanks for joining me. What is in store for us next time? We are approaching the Halloween season once again. So in celebration of that time in our lives, I thought we'd go back, dip our hands back into the horror genre as we discuss and analyze Catherine Bigelow's 1987's horror movie, Near Dark. Near Dark. Near Dark. I've never heard of this film. Yes, it's definitely an obscure movie. Again, uh, in the spirit of the show, Catherine Bigelow now is obviously a little little bit more recognized in, uh, because of her more recent movies that she's done, and she doesn't have a, a very large resume. So I thought it would be an in- interesting choice to see the beginnings uh, of her early work. And I won't spoil it for you. My suggestion is is try not to read up on it. I don't even want to tell you the type of horror movie it is. Just try and go in with as little information as possible. No, I'm going in cold. I'm not yeah. doing anything. I'm going yeah. in cold. Or who's in it or anything like that. Don't look at okay. the cast, even though I'm sure you'll it'll get given away very quickly. But I, I think you might get a kick out of some players in this movie. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. I, I mean, I, I like her work, as limited as it is. But I'm going in cold. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just watching it. I'm just going to boot it up and watch it. Yeah, I've already seen it. I'm already ready to go. So whenever you are, I'm in. Sweet. I'm looking forward to it, man. That's our episode for this time. Uh, Thanks for being on the show, man. And we'll catch you on the flip side. All right. I'll see you later. All right, man. Next time.